Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, everyone, to episode 235 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of the financial markets and financial planning. This week, I'm honored to have Aaron Kramer on the podcast with me. Aaron is a wealth advisor and a CFP at our firm, Jessup Wealth Management. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you, Matt. Happy to happy to be on today. It's been a little while, so I, if I'm rusty, I'll apologize in advance. <laughs> oh, you're going to do great. It's always an honor to have you on. I'm excited. Yeah, I got a couple topics that are targeted towards you awesome. on my talking Love points it. of the day, so I can't <laughs> wait to get your feedback. And then later in the podcast, we are blessed and honored to have uh, Taylor Ledbetter uh, on the podcast, and she's selected a financial planning topic of the week um, that I uh, that I saw that I'm excited to have her talk about on that side. So before we get started, Aaron, um, this week, let's review the year-to-date performance of the major market indices that we track on the podcast at the beginning of every one for new listeners. This data is from StockCharts.com, and it is as of last night's market close, which was January 17th of 2024. Here we go, Aaron. S&P 500 index year-to-date down 0.64%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 1.12%. The NASDAQ Composite year-to-date AC down 1.04%. The IWM that tracks the Russell 2000 Small Cap Index uh, down 5.6% year-to-date. And the uh, Vanguard World ex-United States uh, ETF through last night down 3.81%. So you get a feel there for some of the equity Mm -hmm. side of the equation. Let's talk about bonds. Three-month yield, 5.38, the two-year at 4.36, and the 10-year at 4.11. One important item to note, Aaron, for our listeners and viewers, the yield, the annualized yield on the 10-year Treasury and the five-year Treasury are no longer inverted. So the five-year yield this morning sits at 4.03%. So with the 10-year at 4.11, you are once again starting to see, Aaron, the normalization of the yield curve. Yes. Now, when I say that, you know what that kind of means in plain English for our viewers is that in a normal environment, you are compensated with additional yield to lock your money up for a longer period of time, right? right? And so... Um, my last comment is I think it will continue to take time for it to normalize across the actual yield curve itself, but it's a good first step. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think it's still going to be quite some time before the, the two and the 10 year on invert. And those, that's kind of the biggie that, that most people are looking at is the two and the 10 year uh, for exactly. those to, to uninvert, right? Exactly. And so for our newer listeners, we've talked about it a couple of times in the podcast over the last six months. Uh, what Aaron is is talking about more specifically is you're actually getting compensated with a higher interest rate on a U.S. Treasury bond with a two-year maturity than you are with a longer-dated 10-year, and uh, that's not normal. That's uh, an inverted nope. yield curve, but uh, as Aaron said, it'll take a lot of time, but it'll eventually, historically, yep. it always it, it, it'll, it'll change point. back, right? Yep. Yep. 
So uh, let's talk about big headlines for the week before we start highlighting things that caught our eye for our listeners and viewers. You know, the first thing is I'll throw it out there. Uh, for the most part, large cap U.S. stock indices are flat to start the year after yep. a very strong fourth quarter of 2023. And uh, Q4 earnings season really starts to heat up over the next couple of weeks. So what do I mean by that? We got to remember, publicly traded companies report their earnings to shareholders every quarter. They're giving you a detailed uh, summary of their balance sheet cash flow statement, and they tend to give their kind of outlook on their business. Is that a good mm -hmm. way of saying it, Aaron? Absolutely. Perfect. So that data is going to be from October 1st through December 31st of the fourth quarter of last year. A majority of the companies tend to report kind of near the end of January. Yeah. Okay. January, early February is kind of normal, normal reporting. Exactly. And so you're going to get a lot of data, I think, hitting the tape um, that could be influencing kind of the next steps of the market. How's that sound? Right. I think that's a great way to put it. So, yeah, my only thought is, you know, the, the markets had a really, really strong fourth quarter. Uh, for performance, so oh, the the indices being flat or down slightly doesn't surprise me right now. So it's kind of kind of normal seasonality for this the next couple of months. Absolutely, and agree, I, know, my friend. I know you and Mark have have talked about seasonality quite a bit the last the last several podcasts, but just kind of reiterating that point. I have another update to it. You have a perfect <laughs> segue for me. There we go. So uh, on the podcast, we now transition to what we call tweets, articles, and research over the past week that either caught my eye or Aaron's eye. Uh, Aaron, I'm going to go ahead and start because you had the perfect segue for me. Perfect. Okay. Well, so this piece I'm going to discuss is a statistic that I saw about the fourth year of a new president in that fourth year of the presidential election cycle. What's the stock market do? And so uh, Jenna's going to put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. This chart will be in our show notes and all of our social media sites uh, for Jessup Wealth Management. And the data set, as Jenna puts this chart up, is you're going to see at the bottom here, Aaron, 1956, 1964, 7280, 84, 92, 96, 04, 2012, and 2020. And what it does is it overlays uh, for the S&P 500, how does the market usually perform in that fourth year? Right. Now, why I think, first of all, I think this is important to put emphasis on is it's very common for uh, most investors to be concerned about, let's just say, the political ramifications mm -hmm. of an election Absolutely. year and how it influences the market, right? Yep. So what's interesting, when you look at this data, it tends to be the market does well historically, and this is not guaranteed it's going to be this way this year, but from, say, spring through the end of the year with a pause kind of a month or two kind of before the election. But it starts off kind of flat between the beginning of the year through spring, which I found yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's almost like the first half of the year is, is pretty much flat. Yep. And so, again, I think this is still a market environment where it's time in the market, not timing the market. Um, Absolutely. And this is just kind of more justification for that. And this uh, source of this chart was uh, from Carson Research, Ryan Dietrich, a uh, friend of the podcast. Um, and I want to throw that out there. Absolutely. So next, 
Um, this is going to be an interesting topic. <laughs> it tends to be a hot button for certain people. I'm ready. So um, I wouldn't call it a hot take, but maybe at the end you'll correct me. Yeah, so here we I, go. Uh, I'm excited for it. Here we go. Be careful. This is my topic. Be careful of selecting a stock because of its dividend yield. Let me get I think into that it. That is very, very wise words. <laughs> That's the words of the wisdom today. So here we go. At the beginning of each year, Aaron, I tend to see certain investment strategies that resurface because a certain screening process is utilized and refreshed on an annual basis. One I tend to see every year is called the dogs of the Dow. This strategy has been around for a long time. The idea is that someone buys either the top 10 or top five dividend yielding stocks of the Dow 30 index, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, mm -hmm. equally weights them, holds them for a year, and then rebalances at the end of the year into the next list of the top 10 or top five, rinse and repeat annually. There's a misperception that I think investors have about the topic of dividends, Aaron. The main misperception I see is this. Since the company pays a high dividend relative to other stocks, it must mean it's safer or more stable and or less volatile compared to other stocks. That is not accurate. Hence, I want to address the topic. So before I go further, I think we should. I need to provide some additional disclaimers from a compliance perspective. <laughs> uh, I'm about to discuss a specific stock that was in the news recently, and I'm going to use it as my poster child. This is not a recommendation for or against this specific name. Okay, so the name I'm going to use here is Walgreens. A lot of people mm -hmm. recognize that name. Would you not say? Absolutely. So the company posted earnings. It's a weird one that kind of post earnings at a weird time of the quarter. They posted earnings on January 4th. Okay. So be mindful of people that rebalanced at the end of the year and got into this name because it pays a high dividend and I'll get right. to it. So the company posted earnings on January 4th when it reported earnings on that day, it cut its quarterly dividend in half. Uh, to 25 cents a quarter from 48 cents a quarter. It did so, quote Aaron, to strengthen its long-term balance sheet and cash position, end quote. <laughs> Based upon the January 16th closing price, the dividend yield is now 4.37% on an annualized basis compared to 8.4% if it were still paying out that 48 cents a quarter like it was previously. All data is from stockcharts.com. So I ran some figures through stock charts on the 16th of this month after the market closed, prepping for this podcast. The year-to-date return for Walgreens through the market close on the 16th, Aaron, negative 12.41%. That compares to the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which was down 0.87, and the S&P, which was down 0.08% during those same time periods. What's the lesson here? The lesson is I recommend against solely making an investment decision on a stock's dividend yield. You can lose more in share value than the dividend pays you. Right. Walgreens is a case in point for this. 
Aaron, I know you come across this as well with with clients you interact Absolutely. with. Yeah. I, what's your words of wisdom? Just kind of expand upon this for me, please. Yeah. When, when when I'm looking at a stock, it has to be more than just that attractive yield. It's paying that yield for a reason, right? So that's right. That's an excellent <laughs> point right there. Right. And it's not guaranteed as we can see. So it's paying the yield for a reason because, you know, maybe it's not growing as fast. They're not reinvesting their proceeds to grow their earnings anymore. They're, they're kind of on, they're just on a plateau would be kind of my phase of the company. Cycle. Exactly. Exactly. So they're not, they're not really reinvesting into themselves anymore. And obviously, as we can see that, that, that dividend can go away uh, pretty quickly. So, um, and that's obviously going to impact the stock price. Um, so, I see a lot of a lot of stocks that you know the yield's really really nice, but if you're you're losing that principal, the stock value, why does it matter, right? It has to it has to you have to have both ends because if you're losing value on the stock price, but you're getting yield, it really doesn't matter. You'd be better off in something else that's has a better price performance and a lower dividend yield. So, um, I think it's well said. Very important to look at, you know, the underlying fundamentals of the company, their industries, all that stuff, not just an attractive eight and a half percent yield. Right. Well said, AC. I'm going to add one more wrinkle to this for our listeners and viewers. Let's think about where we're at in the economic cycle with interest rates. A lot of companies refinanced, locked in their debt when rates were low, just like a lot of home borrowers who had a mortgage. Mm -hmm. They refied and they got a low rate. The difference between corporate debt and mortgages is that they're drastically shorter maturities relative right. terms. So think of it this way. You're a high dividend yielding stock. What happens if interest rates stay higher for longer? And when mm -hmm. that debt matures and you got to roll it at a higher interest rate, how do you think they're going to pay to service they that can't, interest? They can't afford that dividend anymore, and right? They can't afford the dividend anymore. Right. I think so that's, I think that's there's what we're elevated here. risk the next couple of years at some of these high dividend yielding stocks that have high debt levels, mm -hmm. that as the debt rolls, you could see dividend cuts. Absolutely. Because they're in the mature phase of their cycle. They're not growing enough to offset that cautionary tale. Absolutely. No, I think that's a great point. I love that. Love that topic. So I knew it was going to be a little hot. I, have, I already good. have a feeling that Jenna's going to get emails from people, like the <laughs> hardcore dividend people, like Matt. You're not. You're not thinking we're, of this side of it. You're not thinking we're of that side. Ruffling some feathers of it. for sure. I know. It's like <laughs> I, I just come at it from this standpoint. It dividends are a consideration, not a sold, not a sole um, investment decision. Absolutely. And there are people that literally make that one of their core theses is with very little consideration elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And that's where I would love to have a lively debate. Oh, you get Mark <laughs> on that? Oh my gosh, that oh, would be interesting. On page. He's on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I wanna talk about financial conditions, okay? Financial conditions. So before I get into this, I'm gonna start with some education, Aaron. So um, I got this data from the St. Louis uh, Federal Reserve District. And so I'm gonna read this verbatim from their website, okay? Perfect. Quote, what are financial condition indices? It's the measure of equity prices, also commonly referred to as stock prices, the strength of the U.S. dollar, market volatility, credit spreads, long-term interest rates, and other variables are sometimes combined into an index to create an overall measure of financial conditions at any given point in time. Movements in such indices are sometimes cited as a reflecting the impact in changes in monetary policy on financial conditions, which in turn impact consumer spending decisions, things for like housing and durable goods, right. and 
firm's investment decisions. It says many different indices of financial conditions exist. Popular ones include Bloomberg and Goldman Sachs, some Federal Reserve banks such as the St. Louis Fed, the Kansas City Fed, and the Chicago Fed also have their own indices. Mm-hmm. It says the various indices generally include different components and or put different weights on those. So now that I've given a little bit of education, let's talk about a chart. I saw this on an X post on January 9th from a trader, Mike Zaccardi, that I follow on X. Jenna will put up this chart for our YouTube viewers that are watching on video. For those, again, that are listening through traditional podcast venues, uh, this is going to be in our show notes and all of our social media sites, such as X, LinkedIn, Facebook, etc. What you're going to see, Aaron, here is the fastest easing of financial conditions in the data sets going back about 40 years, four decades. And so this is a quote in the Goldman Sachs U.S. Financial Condition Index. It's a two-month rate of change, and you're seeing a very quick movement towards, quote-unquote, easing conditions, right. things getting easier, money right. easier to borrow. Okay, So what does this mean? Why am I highlighting this? It means that U.S. financial conditions are improving. Not going to see this on the front of the journal. And remember what the St. Louis Fed said about this, quote, movements in such indices are sometimes cited as a reflecting the impact changes in monetary policy on financial conditions, which in turn, the important point, impact consumer spending decisions and firms investment decisions. Right. Meaning things get better financially in these indices. Oh, that project I've been delaying, I'm going to proceed forth with it. That hiring plan that I had, I'm going to put that forth. I'm going to hire that individual. Mm-hmm. I'm going to invest in that piece of equipment, blah, blah, blah. You see the, the domino effect economically. Mm-hmm. This is not bearish. Not I mean, at all. I should bring back the hashtag when it <laughs> applies. The hashtag is here, Jenna. That's not bearish. <laughs> Love it. No, I, I agree. And I, I mean, just to just uh, maybe answer ask a question so um do you think this is you know kind of pricing in in quotes the likelihood that interest rates come down well well great question because that's exactly (laughs) where you need to be going and connecting the dots for our listeners and viewers so let's think about where interest rates were at the very end of october let's just take the 10-year treasury as an example Mm -hmm. okay that was about one percent higher than it is today to see a 1% drop in the yield on a 10-year in such a short period of time is extremely abnormal. Right. And it's the market, as you are insinuating, anticipating, okay, the Fed is done raising. So right. now the big question is, is twofold. When's their first cut? And then at what trajectory or how fast do they continue those cuts? Well, the market's telling you that it thinks rates are going to be lower in the future. Absolutely. And so now what the market's doing is it's debating the trajectory or the speed of those lowers. But you're seeing people already knee-jerk reaction. Financial conditions are easing. It's getting easier. And once again, not bearish. That's perfect. This is a perfect segue into my next topic. We are, we are, we, we are, are on jiving the same page here, today. man. We are jiving. <laughs> all right. It's all over. It's all over to you. All right. Um, I've got my first items. It's actually two tweets or X okay. posts. I X should post. say I'm, I'm still getting used to that. 
Um, first one is from Bespoke Investment Group on uh, January 16th of this week. And um, it's this uh, ex post says markets are pricing a 59.6% chance that we will see two 25 basis point rate cuts by May 1st of this year. Do you see that happening? It also Absolutely. has a chart here. I do. I just, um, I, I'm being transparent and honest. Yeah, I do. I agree. And, and I if think we can be um, wrong. Remember, this is our opinions on this topic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Um, um, go ahead. I'll let you continue. No, I'll, no I'll you're good. It. I just I think that's uh, it's a, again a perfect segue into easing of financial conditions because you know half half the survey here is expecting um, rates to be you know 50 basis points lower in the next three, four months, which I think is a, a very good thing for, for the financial conditions, um, in the market. Um, so we'll see, I know we could be wrong, but I think it's, uh, I think it's looking likely. Let me try to extremely oversimplify this topic for our listeners and viewers. Okay. Yes. So right now, if you are a financial institution, i.e. a bank, and you need to borrow money from the Federal Reserve, that is reflective of something called mm -hmm. the Fed funds rate. That is what you see in the news when the government, quote unquote, changes interest rates. That rate right now, tongue in cheek, is about 5.25%, okay? Now, historically, in a normal economic environment, whatever one-year inflation is, one-year CPI, mm -hmm. The Fed funds rate tends to be relatively close to it. Yeah, pretty right? pretty spot on. Right. So if you look at today, the government is telling you that one year inflation year over year is a little bit over three percent. I believe they mm -hmm. rated about three point one, three point two. Right. The Fed funds rate, though, I just told you is at five and a quarter. So why is there the difference? It's because the Fed quote unquote, wants to make sure that they have tamed the inflationary issues we were experiencing during the pandemic. Yep. Well, the market's extrapolating. Well, that inflation data has really come in. I know Federal Reserve, you want to hit your 2% inflation target, but there's a pretty big spread between 5.25%. Yeah, got over 2% over spread, right? And where inflation's at today, even though that's coming down. So I think the market is going back to your comments a couple minutes ago, Aaron. It's anticipating that, all right, the Fed's going to have to start lowering that because what is the risk if they don't do this? I'm going to use the airplane analogy. The airplane's going to lose lift, i.e. the economy is going to lose lift. Right. And the all of a sudden, recession, right? They, keep, they keep it high for too long. The economy could stall out. And the warning sign for me over the next 12 months is this. If they start to get more aggressive in a certain meeting and do a half a percent and not a quarter, mm -hmm. investors and listeners, you better perk up real quick because that <laughs> means that they're concerned of the economy stalling out. They're attempting to correct more, put their foot on the pedal, and that means that they have some information the market doesn't because right. the market's good at anticipating these things. If Absolutely. they do it more methodical and quarter of a points, even if it's meeting after meeting, I think that's relatively good news for the economy. So far, they have completely shocked everybody on Wall Street. No one, very few people, I'm not going to spike the football, thought they <laughs> could do 
a relatively soft landing, and so far they've executed that. Are they going to continue to thread that needle? It's to be seen. Right. But so far, you gotta you gotta stand back and you gotta do a golf clap for the Fed. So far, I agree. Yeah, they've done a good job, which is is surprising. <laughs> it really much. It very good. much is. Um, any other thoughts on that on that chart or that topic? Um, my next ex post is um from robin wigglesworth it fits in the same theme um it's a uh bank of america fund manager survey um on the the same date uh 116 and it's expectations for lower short-term rates um at a record high so it's the percent of fund manager survey investors expecting lower short-term rates in the next 12 months and we are at 90 percent expectations you have to go back to the great financial crisis the gfc yes. giving it closer to this and it's I mean, you... still 10 percent off it's crazy uh, so i mean that for this fund manager survey that's that's a very very high expectations that rates are going to be lower so i think that fits into our same couple of themes here um it's a good um hmm. good data set for for uh for our last couple items here i would say so Perfect. Um, I got two more for you. I'll try to make them somewhat quick. They're they're a little bit uh, longer articles. Um, the first article I wanted to talk on it's about rent and um, Gen Zers, right? So we haven't. This is an untapped market for us. We don't we don't really speak to the Gen Z um, people too much on the podcast. Doesn't seem like so. Maybe try to capture some new listeners here. <laughs> All right, let's um, do this. So the uh, the article is uh, posted on January 15th by Anna Teresa Sola, um, and it says, uh, here are three ways Gen Zers can build credit before renting their own place. So um, she had a really good chart here, and it um, shows the median, median asking rent in the United States. So across the whole U.S., data is from Redfin, um, and it's as of January 8th. Um, it actually shows that rent had a decline um, by 0.8%. So I know you've seen this too, and um, there's a big CPI lag on rent data. So I yep. think this these numbers are going to continue to artificially come down um, for rent prices. So if we looked at rent on August uh, of 2022, average price was 2054. If we look at 2023 in December, um, end of the year, it was 1964, so 1,964. So um, I just wanted to highlight a few of her key points. So um, while prices are moderately cooling in the rental sector, there's still a long way to go before real estate market sees consistent and significant price decreases. Um, according to her source, Jacob uh, Channel, a senior economist at LendingTree, I would almost argue that I think we're going to see a quicker drop in, in rent prices than maybe she's alluding to um just looking at some of the cpi data but that's 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 our opinion my opinion i agree um so she says whether you're on the rental market sidelines or have your eyes on an ideal apartment in your area here are three ways to strengthen your credit score so i just thought these were good tips you know for for parents that have younger gen zers that you know they're going to go to college or they're about to head out on their own in the next few years just some good tips to look at um with my my financial planning mind here. <laughs> Love this. Um, so the three ways to build credit, uh, leverage bills you routinely pay. So um, traditionally reoccurring household bills such as utilities and internet service do not show up on your credit report. Um, so they're not factored into your score. Um, she says, however, programs such as Experian Boost, Stellar, Fi, and UltraFICO allow users to build credit 
based on alternative metrics such as banking activity, uh, payments for streaming service, electric bills, and phone uh, mobile phone plans. So uh, I think that's a good tip for for younger people that you know maybe they're not ready for a a credit card yet or you know any unsecured debt or secured debt. Um, just trying to build that credit score is obviously very important for your entire life and career. Um, that you know most most apartment complexes or, or rentals are going to run your credit score to see if you're you know you're qualified to to rent. Yep. Um, so that's a that's a good topic that I hadn't really thought of is is using kind of those alternative sources to kind of slowly build your credit over time. Um, second um, idea she has here is become an authorized user. So you know an authorized user is someone that uh, say your your parent or someone in your life has good credit. Um, you can become an authorized user. It's not a co-signer, so the the, the Gen Zer in this example is not on the hook for payments. Yep. Um, but you're just kind of linked to that that credit line or that credit card. So it's a good way, you know, to kind of piggyback uh, someone else's credit score. So that's a really really good way to to build credit um, if you don't have any. Uh, Great idea. Especially no no history. Great um, idea. Third option, she says, use a uh, secured credit card. Um, so a secured credit card um, it's typically easier to qualify for. Um, it's typically tied to your credit line. So typically you make kind of a down payment, say you give them a thousand bucks. That's typically what your credit line is. So there's really no risk for the bank or the lender because they have your, your, uh, secured amount. And, um, it's a, it's a ideal, uh, for someone to start building credit. Um, and it typically won't have an annual fee, uh, reports payments to all major credit bureaus. Um, and has a built-in path typically towards, you know, a normal credit card, an unsecured credit card in the future. So I just thought those were some some good ideas for um, for Gen Zers and, and parents of Gen Zers that are going to be kind of um, setting out into the real world. Yeah. Um, I thought she had an interesting stat here is nearly a third, 31% of uh, adult Gen Zers, so those obviously above 18, uh, live at home with parents or family members because they can't afford to buy or rent their own place. So just interesting stat there. It's, so it's crazy. And you're and you're already starting to see the family formation data where families are coming back together, especially with aging parents. Absolutely. Hey, it's tough for me to afford a house. Mom and dad need help instead of them fill in the blank. They keep that house or they get a bigger house. We blend our families together. Right. I'll help take care of mom and dad. They help pay the house bills or the difference I can't afford. We are seeing that. Absolutely. Especially, I think, in the short term as, you know, housing prices and rent has been, you know, kind of unaffordable for a lot of people sure. with interest rates, right? Helps so. mom and dad because they need help and they don't want to pay for that. Helps the kids because they can't afford the housing they really want to live in and the school district they want for their kids, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I got one more thing I've heard about in the past, and I don't remember the vendor of who does it, but I've heard that there's a vendor out there or a company that if you're loaning money to, say, a family member, they become the intermediary to where, in essence, that company is the one that loans the money to the family member. That originator is like the investor. Mm -hmm. That person pays back the intermediary with interest, right? And then that's all reported to the credit bureaus. And I see, I've heard people t talk to me about this, to where it's like, okay, I loan my brother-in-law money for this X Y Z business, and all of a sudden <laughs> that becomes a reportable thing to the credit bureaus, helps right. them uh, helps them build credit, but also if they default on this, it's there's consequences for them. 
Absolutely. That's, a, oh, so, that's interesting. I've not heard yeah, of that. That's, just, that's pretty I, I didn't, cool. I forget the name of the company that did it, but I remember reading about that a couple years ago. So that's another potential area for listeners and viewers that might, uh, might work on building credit. Absolutely. That's a great one. Um, last thing I got for you. This is a this is a an article. It's got some spicy takes. A little little politically minded for for um, the writer of this article. So just filter Sleeves through that. Sleeves yeah. going up. I'm ready. It's, um, it it has nothing to do with our opinions or of any of the politicians and that that he lists in here. But oh. um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get that. I know get, the viewers and listeners are dying to know some of our insights on this stuff. No, no, we're not. We're not going to talk. We're about not going to. I'm not going to take the bait. <laughs> Um, so this is an article, um, it's by Brenton Smith. Um, he, he writes for advisor perspectives and he says, let's be honest about social security. Um, so I'm going to read kind of verbatim through, it's not a super long article. I'll read through it real quick. Um, so he starts off, uh, many of the commentators on my articles claim as does Chris Christie, that social security is a safety net. It is not. I appreciate the comments that readers make on my articles. I respond when I can incorporate the responses into future articles. There was, there are some common themes and comments uh, and an article is warranted to explain that HL Mencken was right. For every complex solution, there's a solution that is simple, neat, and wrong. If there was a simple solution to fix social security imbalances, Congress would have already fixed it. Social security is not a safety net. It's old age insurance, which provides a hedge against the cost of the unknown. It is not different from auto or home insurance. Uh, we do not know how many fires we will have, so we buy home insurance. We, uh, we have no idea how many meals we will eat at 90, so we need old age insurance. Um, Going to pause there. Any thoughts? <laughs> no, I think that... Uh, I have a feeling as to what's going to happen with Social Security mm -hmm. over the next several decades, and I will save that till the end. How about All that? Right. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Um, when you rec when you have a car wreck, the auto insurance does not replace the car. There is a deductible. Likewise, old age insurance is not designed to be your sole source of income in retirement. Well said. And sometimes that could be very expensive if you have a new car. Yeah, that's right. In the words of FDR, we have provided average citizens the some measure of protection against poverty ridden old age. Keep in mind some, some measure. measure, some yes. measure. Uh, Social Security is not a 401k or a substitute for one. Savings is designed to make money by taking risk, whereas insurance is the cost of managing risk. I like that. Um, one is an investment and the other is an expense. Policy experts on Social Security routinely confuse the two, but financial advisors can't. Uh, FDR opposed the idea of Social Security being a safety net. In fact, he insisted upon the program providing earned benefits over lifetime of contributions. He also opposed the pay-as-you-go method, which he called the dole under another name. Uh, according to A.J. Altmeyer, who served as the chairman of the Social Security Board, there are four basic components of social insurance. One, it provides benefits on a specific and predetermined basis. Two, it provides these benefits as a matter of right without means or a needs test. It provides these benefits largely out of contributions made by or on behalf of the beneficiaries. It provides a long systematic range, uh, systematic method of financing rather than a year-to-year -year unsystematic method. So um, he says when someone like Chris Christie says the fact is on Social Security, remember why it was established. It was established as a safety net program. Um, the, the article writer says he's uninformed. FDR didn't want anyone to confuse his programs 
uh, with food stamps. So going to pause there. That's that's the that's the main points of the article. Yeah. Um, give me your thoughts. Uh, I'm curious to see. I, don't know. <laughs> I might. This might be a hot take. I don't know. We'll see what you say at the end. I'm ready. Um, when you went through those uh, those four basic components. Mm-hmm. Number two, in my opinion, and I do feel strongly about this, is what's going to change over the next couple of decades, which is this. Quote, it provides these benefits as a matter of right without a means or a needs test. Yes. I think one of the ways that they are going to strengthen Social Security, because mm-hmm. it's underfunded. Why is it underfunded? People are living a lot longer than they anticipated. Not paying into it Not relative to people. what's using it. You got it. I think we go to a point where they look at your income for the previous year for everything, and you will start to get a percentage of that amount. I want you to think of the tax code. The more money you make, the higher taxes you pay. Mm -hmm. It's going to be similar to that. The more money you make, the less Social Security you receive that year in retirement. So my two cents is, you're already starting to see us a couple of decades behind the evolution of what you're seeing over in Europe. And you're seeing more and more socialistic oriented economic policies. And I think eventually the easiest way for them to shore this up Mm -hmm. is to do a needs-based test. I would agree. Whether that's right or wrong, I'm not going to debate, but I, I would agree with you. Uh, I think that's the I think because that's let, the likely let's trajectory. Face it, politically, tax the rich is an <laughs> easy way to secure your job as a politician for most of them. Right. And we just right. have to be realistic about this. Yeah. I think there's, and, you know, there's two ways. And it's a can way that you it. can do that. Yeah. Is either make it needs based or raise taxes on on the other end, making you know, making FICA more expensive. So yeah, and what'll happen is it'll as inflation goes up, that that discount, that haircut mm-hmm. that starts to hit quote unquote, the average American, that's when you're going to start to see the pushback on on this needs based. But I do think it's where it's headed. Yeah, I would agree. Might be a hot take. Do you think it's a hot take? <laughs> I, I don't think it's that hot of a take. I, I don't think people are going to like that. But um, it's I think it's a reasonable take. I, a most likely outcome, in my opinion. So not yeah. super spicy, but a good take. OK, I'll take that. <laughs> We're going to tie nine. It's not a five. It's two. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we uh, transition to Taylor uh, with time, I know she has a fabulous financial planning topic of the week picked out for us. Aaron, any kind of closing comments that you would like to share with our listeners and viewers, sir? And um, last thing, I just reminding people about seasonality. I think, you know, we could have some some choppiness in the market for the next couple of months. So just be prepared for that. You know, it is an election year. So try to filter through the news headlines. You know, a lot of them are are, are there to grab your attention, not necessarily be accurate. Um, so those are my words of wisdom. So just for the record, when it comes time at the end, I'm going to offer Taylor the same thing. And I'm going to sit there and say, remember what Aaron said. That's exactly (laughs) what I'm going to say. You said it perfectly, my friend. Always great having you on. Thank you for your time and listeners and viewers value it as well. So let's transition now over to Taylor. Uh, Taylor is a wealth advisor with our firm, Jessup Wealth Management. Um, She does a lot of our pair planning work, we call it internally. It's a lot of our financial planning work. 
Um, it could be everything from analysis of retirement planning as an example, estate planning strategies, etc. Uh, she has a great spot on our website, uh, Joseph Wealth Management, where she highlights and pins a monthly financial planning topic, kind of like a white paper uh, on, a, on a subject that she grabs. So I know we have a lot of fans of Taylor on the podcast. I would encourage you to check out that section of the Jessup Wealth Management website. Taylor, welcome. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing great. So uh, before we kind of dig into the topic of the week, what's new in your world? Anything you want to highlight about yourself for the markets? Um, nothing new in my world. I know I have a lot of traveling coming up, so I don't know when I'll be on the podcast next. It might be a little bit, um, but it's good to be on today. Wonderful. What we should do is at the end, if a listener or viewer has a specific topic they would love for you to go in depth on, um, we'll bring Jenna on at the very end and she will reiterate how we can put those specific requests into the system. And you might be able to pin uh, and talk about a specific topic that one of our listeners wants to hear about. How's that sound? Yep, that'd be a great idea. All right. So, uh, Taylor, you have the floor. All right, so today I'm going to be referencing an article. It's called, Should I Do a Debt Consolidation Loan? And I found this article on a blog. It's called Good Financial Sense. So this article, just the introduction, starts off by saying, if you're deep in debt and struggling to find a way out, you might be considering a debt consolidation loan as a solution to your problem. By consolidating multiple debts and outstanding balances into a new loan product, you can rid yourself of the need to make several payments every month, simplify your life, and lower your monthly out-of-pocket expenses. And if your debts are truly out of control, a consolidation may even offer a way to save yourself from debt collections, poor or ruined credit, or bankruptcy. So I do think consolidation loans can be great. There's a lot of factors that go into it. Yep. So the article starts off just naming some of the disadvantages of a consolidation loan. The first one is it may not lower your interest rate. So it said, if you don't secure an annual percentage rate that's considerably lower than what you're paying right now, you could pay the same amount of interest or even more, depending on the details. Mm-hmm. And I know this has been a topic that's come up for me frequently over the last year, just in different meetings. And a huge factor is you know, what the Fed is doing with interest rates. Because rates have been at a very high point recently, and so I don't think a consolidation loan over the last year or so has been the best or the smartest move. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Well said, because the rates are drastically higher than they were a couple of years ago, relatively speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then at that point, it's like, how much are you actually saving with when rates are this high? Yeah. So the second disadvantage with these types of loans are you may need to extend your repayment timeline, and that could cause you to live with the debt a lot longer. 
So it'll be dependent on the terms of your new consolidation loan. Um, you might be able to extend it. You might not be able to. Um, but at the end of the day, you don't want to be paying on that debt for longer than you need to. Yes. So the next couple of disadvantages um, are more psychological. So the, the next one was it could give you a false sense of accomplishment. So it says debt consolidation loans usually leave people feeling relieved because they've reduced the number of monthly payments they need to make, but you're still carrying the exact same amount of debt, and that's why it can give you a false sense of accomplishment. You just moved it around. Yeah, yeah. The other one I kind of see there is that they do like some sort of debt consolidation loan, pays off their credit card, and then a year later, what could happen with that credit card debt could be right back there and you still are paying off the other debt. Exactly. That's another potential risk that just made me think about it when you say that false sense of accomplishment can get people into a lull. I'm good now. I can mm -hmm. do this, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's actually funny you say that because that was the the next disadvantage oh, okay. that the article I didn't know that. talked okay. about. Sorry, I didn't mean to steal your thunder. No, there. you're good. Um, and the the writer of this article actually said that's probably the biggest disadvantage is that it doesn't change your behavior. Yeah. Um, so, like you said, if you do have a spending problem and you do a consolidation loan. If it's a problem you've struggled with in the past, you know, maybe that credit card could get racked up pretty quickly. Yep. You know, one way that I like to overcome this for individuals that uh, communicate this concern about themselves, old school envelope method. And what I mean by that is that's where you literally start paying with paper currency, i.e. cash for things, because psychologically, Taylor, you know, I'll give you an example. I went to Dorothy Lane Market last night, which is a local grocery store here in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, picked up some pork chops and some vegetables. All right. S swipe the, the, the credit card, you know, $35. Okay. Well, it's like, imagine the difference of the two $20 bills you're taking out of your pocket. It means more and you can track it easier. And so I think that if you're struggling with that side of it, transitioning to using paper currency you have your budget for the week and you're you know you're you're handing that money to the cashier that's a lot different than just swiping the card you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah i think there actually have been studies done um i don't know where the studies have been done i just heard of this i think from dave ramsey maybe um because he's really big on the envelope the envelope system oh but okay did not know that actually, but good to know yeah when you actually physically pay with cash versus the card, I think you're less likely to spend as much because you're actually handing over the cash. Well, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with it if you're on that sense. So um, those were the main disadvantages that the article went over, and then it talked a little bit about alternatives to a debt consolidation loan. Yeah, what do you got uh, here? Yeah, I think these these couple alternatives that the article brought up were really great. Um, the first one is signing up for a balance transfer credit card. Mm -hmm. Yep. And this is a good option because 
a lot of these transfer cards let you pay 0% interest for some kind of promotional period. That could be 12 months, you know, 16, 18 months. It just depends. But I think this is a good alternative if you can control your spending. I'm in <laughs> um, agreement on this. Yeah. Mm hmm. Because it kind of goes back to what you said earlier. If you transfer that debt to a 0% interest card, well, don't rack up the, the other one with the higher rate. Yep. Yep. So I think that's a, a really great alternative um, as long as your spending is under control. And then the second alternative, it includes a couple different methods. Um, one is the debt snowball method and the debt avalanche method. So if you would rather focus on just, you know, knocking out that debt, um, you could do the debt snowball method, which is also very popular um, in the Dave Ramsey world. <laughs> mm -hmm. So this method, you basically focus on the cards with the lowest balance first, regardless of interest rate. So you list out all the cards with all the balances and you make all the minimum payments on the higher balance cards and put as much as you can on the smallest card um, has more of a psychological effect because you will knock out debt maybe a little quicker because um, mm -hmm. you're focusing on the smallest balance one first. I see that be very popular the last couple of decades and tends to be pretty uh, it gets people uh, with a feeling of accomplishment and uh, it makes them stay committed to the process. Is that a good mm -hmm. way of saying it, Taylor? Mm -hmm. They see the yeah. success. I got this paid off. I got, now I'm going to move that amount I was paying on that one to the next balance, and then you keep snowballing it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, having debt, there definitely is a, a psychological effect. So even though focusing on the smaller balance cards first might not save you the most in interest, um, if it keeps you motivated and consistent, then I think that's, you know, the right strategy for you. One kind of observation I see with just generations is I would say the generation, and I'm going to stereotype people that are below the age of 40, in general, are definitely not embracing debt like people over the age of 40 did uh, throughout their lifespan. And I don't know, I'm just a general observation I'm seeing. Maybe it's a more... Um, educated consumer but i would just say on average i'm not i'm seeing a more disciplined um individuals below the age of 40 compared to history when it comes to the utilization of debt it's just an observation mm -hmm. yeah I, I would actually agree with that for the most part i don't really see a lot of younger individuals who have really stacked up you know a lot of credit card debt or are really in over their head, as you were just yep. saying. Yeah. So uh, another method is the debt avalanche method, and this is the opposite of the snowball effect that we just covered. So instead of listing your debts from smallest to largest, you list all your debts by the highest interest rate instead. Yep. So you'll pay all the minimum payments on all of your loans with the lowest interest rates and then put as much as you can on whatever loan or card has the highest interest rate. Yep. So if you're 
not as I guess psychologically affected by you know having debt maybe you want to save the most in interest then I think the avalanche method is better suited I absolutely agree and then the article just ends with talking about a few tips um, to just paying down debt in general okay. so the first one was stop using credit altogether um, make sure your partner or spouse is on board. Um, again, cut your spending to get out of debt faster and then stick with the plan until you're entirely debt free. So consistency. Hmm. So yeah, in general, I thought the alternatives were really good to cover because um, I get a lot of questions about consolidation loans and I think that you should really look at alternatives before going through and consolidating everything. I love this, Taylor. It'd be a good podcast to kind of reference the financial planning topic of the week, you know, number 235. Go listen to that. Come back. Let's chat. I love it. I'm glad you highlighted this this week. Yeah, I guess thought it was really interesting. No, that's great. Um, you know, before we kind of finish up here, um, any, uh, any closing comments about the market? Uh, anything on the financial planning side of it you'd like to uh, end with? Um, Comment-wise, I mean, I, I agree with what you and Aaron said earlier about we're seeing a lot of seasonality play out because we had such a nice run-up, you know, end of quarter four last year. Yeah. Um, I know we feel really good about the year. Um, I don't think it's going to be a 2023, mm -hmm. but but I think we're in pretty friendly waters for the most part after we get through the election and that volatility. Yeah, well said. I would agree with that. So, um, you know, before we kind of sign off, uh, I want to talk about podcasts in general. If you want to create your own podcast, um, check out um, Blueberry, which is what we use. Uh, and that is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Use the promo code JessupWealth, all lowercase, to get your first month uh, Blueberry podcasting hosting for free. You can choose the ideal plan for you. Use the hosting estimator on their website. Again, you can receive your first month uh, with promo code Jessup Wealth, all lowercase, no spaces. Um, I'm going to stick with uh, you know your comments and Aaron's comments to sign off. I agree with those. Uh, hope everyone has a good rest of the week. I know Mark will be back on the podcast uh, next week with Nick Whitaker. So I'm going to go ahead and sign off. Thank you for listening to – actually, no, Jenna. Um, I, we might get some questions um, and inquiries uh, based upon the podcast today. Why don't you share with our listeners and viewers how they can submit listener questions or requests for topics uh, for Taylor to discuss on our financial planning topic of the week. Yes, listener questions can be submitted to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com or by submitting your question through our Contact Us page on our website. And then make sure while you're there to scroll down and sign up for our newsletters, market updates, and podcast announcements so you never miss an episode. Well said. Thank you, Jenna. So uh, thank you for listening to episode 235 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Myself, Taylor, Jenna, Aaron, Mark, Nick. Uh, we'll be back in weeks to come, and we'll see you soon.
Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show, message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.